0: Amen. You can be seated. Glad you're here this morning. We're Luke, Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. I'd encourage you to go ahead and flip over there. It's a long passage that we'll be walking through today. Um, and it'd be great for you, best for you, if you can follow along. There will be there are notes out on our UVersion Live event. If you like to use those, uh, they're, they're there for you. Uh, there will also be notes on the screen. Um, and so, so, plenty of ways for you to engage. Uh, Jesus is nearing Jerusalem. He's just about 20 miles away. Uh, He's almost there. We've been studying really since the end of Luke chapter uh, 9, his journey from Galilee and his ministry in Galilee to Jerusalem, where he knows what's waiting for him. He's not going to be surprised by it. Excuse me. Um, And and just before he gets there, really, really just before this passage we're going to study today, he's at Zacchaeus' house. He's studying or, or, or he's teaching them. He has Stayed there and he's he's been welcomed in uh, welcomed joyfully by Zacchaeus and and while he's there Zacchaeus gets saved in fact, Jesus pronounces salvation He says salvation has come to this house And then he tells us why he came or at least one perspective of why he came to seek and to save the lost To do the very thing that we just sang about doing Jesus came to do to seek us out and to save us to hold us But he knew that in saying that, that there was going to be a misunderstanding. And so, as a result, he teaches this parable. We'll pick it up in verse 11 um, and, and work our way through it. It says, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, let me just set the context. This is, the, this is kind of a, <clears throat> a statement from Luke to let us know why we're about to read, why we're about to study what we're about to study. This isn't the first time that Jesus has has had to take notice of the fact that, that the Jews assumed he had come to establish his kingdom right then. This time, he's very near to Jerusalem. and In fact, that tells us that's, that's why he, he takes this moment and slows down, because he's near Jerusalem. Jerusalem, if, if, if Jesus is going to establish a kingdom, when the Messiah comes, it was assumed that he would be in, in Jerusalem and he would establish his kingdom from Jerusalem. And here he is, he's just healed a blind man outside of Jericho. Now he's staying in Jericho. He's just praying out salvation and, and then told people why he had come to seek and to save the lost. He'd answered to, to messianic titles. And so the crowds and the people listening in had, w- would naturally assume would naturally assume that he was going to arrive in Jerusalem and establish his kingdom right now, and see their idea was is that their view was is that the the kingdom or or the Messiah and let me say it like this their view was that the Messiah was going to be similar to the judges in the old testament that the, the Messiah was going to come and remove them out from under the oppression of some of some rule other than their own their assumption was is that the messiah would come and establish his eternal kingdom and israel would be uh raised up from among the nations to to just kind of glimmer in all of its glory for the world to look at and that's what they assumed that's what they were thinking and jesus knew better in fact jesus has an understanding a view of the role of messiah that they didn't have i, I mean he's god right Jesus knew that in this time that he he had not come at this point to end all injustices or to free all captives, but rather to pay the debt or to pay the ransom, if you will, for any who would trust in him. He had not come at this point to end all illness, but to do the work that would defeat death. He he hadn't come to rule as a king in in this world, but to serve and suffer as a savior for any who would follow him. Jesus knew the order of things. He knew that, that, that God, in, in the, the Father, could have at any moment, I, I mean instantaneously, God could have saved everyone. He could have paid the price. He could have elected his people and brought them to be. And, and in a creative force, everyone who was ever going to be saved, God could have done it in an instant. But that's not how he chose to do it. By a sovereign act of his will, a choice and a decree of his own, before the foundation of the world, he determined to save. The process or the history of redemption began before he ever said, Let there be light. And that history of redemption, it's it's the thread that ties all of the scriptures together. By his sovereign will, according to his, his sovereign decree, to unite all things in heaven and things on earth was a plan for the fullness of time. Our eternal God, who lives outside of time, had determined to work inside of time for the glory of his name and the good of his people. By his own decree, he determines this. And so Jesus understands that this history of redemption Was not at the point of consummation. It was the point at it was the point of the cross. It was the point of payment. It was the point of foundation. God had been making many promises. God had been been overlooking sins. Payment had to be made. His wrath had to be satisfied. If Jesus just came in and established his kingdom now, we we would have missed that altogether. This is what he'd been telling his disciples. In fact, three times already in the book of Luke, he explicitly tells them, I am going to die. He doesn't doesn't wrap it up in secret language or codes. He just says it outright, I'm going to die. And they didn't get it. For other times and more veiled references, so a total of seven times in the book of Luke as we've studied, we've seen him making reference to his crucifixion and his kingdom consummation. It's happened over and over. And so he tells this parable, letting them know that there is going to be a separation between the time that his kingdom, between the time that he makes it to Jerusalem and the time that his kingdom is finally consummated. There will be an undetermined, un- unstated, real s- period of time. And he wants his people to know what they're supposed to do until he returns. And so here, we have the benefit of history on our side. We don't sit in the exact place that these people sit. Like they're looking toward the cross. They're looking forward to the cross. Like Jesus has been telling them the cross is coming, the cross is coming, the cross is coming. We have the benefit of history. We can look back. The cross has come, the cross has come, the cross has come, but we, like them, live in that time between the cross and the consummation. And so the lessons that he taught them, the ways that he was preparing them to live, the the how-tos of the Christian life are just as real for us as they were for them. the lessons he longed for his people to know in this parable are just as real for us as they are for them. How do we live as Christians as we wait? As he's holding us fast, as he's ensuring our salvation, how do we now live? His kingdom is not going to be immediately established, regardless of how many yahoos come along and tell us that September 23rd is the day. I, I don't know how many times we've heard I think now, what's the date now? October 27th or something like that. I don't know what the next one that they've decided. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. What do we do until the day is here? That's the question that he answers for his followers, for his people. And he provides a warning for everyone else. So let's just work our way through and we'll see that unfold. He says, beginning in verse 12, He said, therefore, so this is the parable. A nobleman, a kingdom, a a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and he said to them, engage in business until I come. Let me just point out, this is going to sound a lot like the ten talents, or or the parable of the talents, I'm sorry, the parable of the talents from Matthew. These are two different parables Two different times, two different sets of event with two different main points. The talents focuses on giftedness, and this parable focuses on faithfulness. And one of the differences, I just read it, he gave them ten minus. He gave them the exact same gift. Each of them received the same gift and the same amount, right? So that's one of the main differences. But let me just, let's just keep going. Verse 13, calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But as citizens... That's not his servants. His citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. In fact, you can see he expects a gain. He doesn't expect everything to be the same. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. Let me point out one other thing, one other, other nuance. The, the work that the mina has made ten minas. He doesn't say, I made ten more minas. He says the mina has made ten minas. It's increased on its own in, in some sense. And, and he said to him, Jesus or, or the king responds, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. Again, the mina is doing the work. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words. You wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. When, when, did you, when did you, let's read that the right way. It's got a question mark at the end. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you put my money in the, why did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minus. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Pretty serious language. In fact... I think as as, as it ends on that note, it's like, whoa, I don't want to be slaughtered. How do I live? Like, help me know. How do I live? What do I do as I wait? How do I keep from being counted as one of these wicked servants or or these rebellious citizens? What do I do? Well, that's the reason Jesus told the parable. And he drew from history. It wasn't, this wasn't an unfamiliar scene for them. This wasn't like some made-up story. It's an allegory. This is a real event that, that, that would have been fresh on their minds. In the year 4 B.C., a man named Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great, was, was, being, was taking over the kingdom from his father. His father separated his kingdom into three pieces among his sons. And Archelaus just happened to be the guy that got Jerusalem. And, and, and Jerusalem, he got, uh, uh, sorry, Judea, he got Samaria and Idumea. I, I, I've forgotten how you say it. But anyway, he got three territories inside of Herod the Great's reign, right? A rule. And, and he, he wanted to be king, but he wasn't a good man. He, w- he was hateful towards the Jews. And, and so there was a point where he goes to Caesar and he says, Caesar, make me king. And the Jews send people from their land. In fact, there was, there was 50 Jews and 50 Samaritans. 50 Jewish people and 50 Samaritans. They hated one another with a passion, but they got together to stand and speak against this man and keep him from being made king over their area. They they despised him more than they despised one another. Not only that, but uh, Josephus records for us that there was over 8,000 Jewish people living in Rome who showed up at this this time and and, and in this place where where, uh, Archelaus was pleading to be made king, making his case to be made king, and over 8,000 Jews who were living in Rome show up and protest. They won't have anything to do with it. They don't want him to be made king. So eventually... Caesar makes his decision. He sends Archelaus home. And he says, you'll rule, but I'm just not going to call you king. But he sent him home with the authority of a king. He sent him home with with the, 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 he he lived in the place of the palace. You know, he lived and, and acted like king. He just didn't carry the title. But Caesar told him, if you'll do, if you'll show yourself, if you'll prove yourself, I'll give you the title. Well, it never happened. In 6 BC, he ends up thrown out and He never actually gets the title. But that's really, that's the story that they would have thought of. That's what they would have heard immediately. Uh, That's not what we hear, right? But again, we got the the benefit of history. But as real for them as the story of a, a king who went away to a far place to receive his title, as real to them as that story of Archelaus is, that story is for us as we think of Jesus. That's exactly what he was doing. He's telling an allegory to help us see that Jesus is the, is the one. He's the one that is the king that has to go away. He's the one that before he can a- a- actually a- a rule in his kingdom, he must go away for a period of time. He is the one. He's the one that, that the citizens would rebel against. He's the one who, who people didn't long for, to be ruled over by. He's the one who, who had faithful servants and wicked servants. He's the one. So Jesus, this is, the, this is I think, the, the main heading or the theme that runs through this whole parable is that Jesus is the suffering Savior who has become the risen king, who equips his servants for faithful service until he returns to consummate his kingdom, until he comes and makes all things new, until he returns and stands in our presence, face to face, face, our faith being made sight, he's this king. And when he went away, he left us with something to do. You see, the thing is, is that the, the rebellious citizens that are in the story, they would, they would be easy to detect, right? It's pretty easy to look out into the world and see rebellious citizens. But the faithful servants and the wicked servants, how do you distinguish between the two? How do you know who you are? The test is faith. We've talked about faith a lot. This is a a, a main theme of Jesus' teaching. A a true and tested faith is what distinguishes faithful servants from wicked servants. It, it, It makes a difference. In real life, it isn't always easy to distinguish, but God will always know. He's always able to see. God can confirm by proving us faithful or wicked. And I'm going to show you four things I think faithful servants, three things faithful servants do, one thing faithful servants receive. But I think it's the point of the text. See, faithful servants invest what they have received in the king's kingdom work. In the parable, the ruler calls ten of his servants. There's ten of them, right? We only hear what happens with three of them. There's ten of them, and he gives them each the same Thing He gives them each a gift and he expects them to do business that gains, right? He expects them to go and put it to work and to see gains come out of it while he's gone. Not while he's present, but while he's gone. And the key factor is not just that they received what they have from him, but they're expected to do his work with it. Not their own. It's not selfish gain. It's not plumping up their bank accounts. It's not making their portfolios broader and more more flashy. It is his work. And so a lot of people ask the question, what is it that the minor represents? Like if this is an allegory, what is it that the minor represents? Well, most of the commentators that I read from emphasize the gospel. And I I think they're right to, to say that. We've all been given the gospel. I mean, in equal, in equal measure, we've all been given the gospel. But I appreciate that J.C. Ryle, in his commentary, or in his little devotional commentary on this passage, he doesn't stop at the gospel, but he points out that it represents all the benefits that we enjoy as believers. We all receive blessing and benefit because of the gospel. In fact, not one of you are lacking in any spiritual Blessing. If you were, God would be a liar. Because his word tells us that he has blessed us in Christ with every every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. You have received every spiritual blessing he has to offer you. That's first, or I'm sorry, that's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Maybe four. Anyway, you can go look it up. It's one of those two. He has He has done that. Not only that, but Peter writing in his second letter, he tells us that he has given us everything we need, not some of what we need, not a few things we need. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He has not held anything back from you that you might live the life he's given for you to live. We have all been blessed by massive amounts of blessing by God in Christ. So I I think that it goes beyond the gospel. I don't think it's less than the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the message of God that is the power to salvation. The gospel, and we use that word a lot, we throw it all all around. We, We talk about it in a lot of ways. But essentially, the gospel is the message. It is the word that Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial, substitutionary death, paying the price for our sin, paying for our redemption, paying the ransom that we might be bought out of God's wrath. And rose victoriously, defeating death so that we can live in eternity in his presence forever. That is a message and we've all been given it. And, it. and it's not just a message that just, you know, it's not like we got to figure it out. It's a message that comes with power. Paul calls it a, the message of God that is the power of salvation. It is the power of God unto salvation. It's the gospel. But it's not just the gospel that he gives us. It's his grace. It's his unmerited goodness. It, it, the, the gospel is, is the result of his grace. The gospel is the expression of his grace. The gospel isn't an attribute of God, but his graciousness is. We get to enjoy all the eternal attributes. We get to enjoy all the goodness of God, all the greatness, all the glory, because he is gracious. Because he's determined that we would not have to experience his wrath. But undeserving and unworthy, he has determined that he would bestow his goodness upon us. Every one of us have received his grace. Every one of us, together, have been given his authority. It starts with Peter. So Peter says, hey, I'm the, Jesus says, who am I? Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes, Peter, on this rock, I'll build my church to you. I give the keys of the kingdom. Demonstrating he's establishing some authority in Peter giving Peter some measure of authority. Just two chapters later, matthew that happens in Matthew 16. Just two chapters later, not separated by a whole lot of time, Matthew 18, he turns around and he says to the church, I give you the keys of the kingdom. Right after he talks about, if your brother sins against you, go to your brother, confront them, call them to repentance. If they don't, bring a a couple of witnesses with you, call them to repentance. If they don't, go to the church where two or three are gathered in my name, and we misquote that verse all the time, but where two or three are gathered in my name, exercising authority because he's given to us the keys of the kingdom. I do not have authority intrinsic to me as a pastor. You have authority. The church has authority in Christ. And then he calls the church to willfully, freely submit to the leaders he places above them. And all I can do is exercise the authority alongside other pastors that he's put in place and other leaders that he's established. Exercise the authority he's given the church. That's the flow. That's the way it looks. He's given us his authority. What's he given us his authority to do? To live in his presence and to complete his mission. His presence. He gives us access to himself. Paul talks about that in Ephesians, that we have been given peace through Christ and access to the God who creates and saves. Like We can actually walk into the throne room. We can call on the God who says, let there be light, and light can't help but shine. We can call on the God who holds all things in his hand and ask for his help and plead with him for safety and provision because he is. He says, you have access. And in his last statement, he says, hey, go make disciples that make disciples. And by the way, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Even in his absence, he's present. And that's the mission. To live in his presence, multiplying his work seeing his kingdom advance, seeing disciples come to to be made, seeing our worship lead others to worship that will lead others to worship, that lead others to worship this great Christ who died in our place and for our sins. What have you been given by Christ? Every spiritual blessing. All you need for life and godliness And he says, until I return, put it to work. Not for your own gain, not for selfish pursuits, not to increase your own portfolio or your own influence in the world, but for my kingdom's work. Put it to work. The mission is not only something we've received, but it's the very reason he gave us what he gave us, so that we could go into the world doing what he's called us to do and see the gains of the kingdom." To see the kingdom advancing. And so faithful servants, faithful servants invest what they've received in the king's kingdom work. Faithful servants endure in investing in kingdom efforts until their king's return. These servants, they didn't give up. There's no indication that that they stopped. The one with ten minas was doing the work until the king came. The, the one with five minas was doing the work until the king came. And we don't know what the other, uh, the other um, six, seven were doing. I'm not good at math. Seven were doing. We don't know what they were doing with their minas, but we, we, we can assume that at least there was some gain. Otherwise, we would hear of more than one servant, one, more than one wicked servant. Maybe they were just getting interest. Maybe they were ones who had just invested in the bank and gained interest off the money. I, I don't know. But they kept at it until the king returned. That's the idea is that there's an until coming. There is an until implied. There's an until impressed upon us. And until he arrives, he expects us to be about his work. So that when he arrives and calls us unto himself to give an account We're ready to do so. But man, this is important. This is not just something, some weight he puts on us. This is not, this, this is not just some lackadaisical expectation or some, well, I just got to give him something to do, because if I don't, well, what kind of king am I? No, it's in this endurance and faithful investing in kingdom efforts that we see the clearest distinction, this enduring distinction between faithful servants and wicked servants. Jesus, talking about the end and, 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 the, and the false prophets that will come and, and preach false gospels, says in Matthew twenty four thirteen, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Faithful servants endure until, until it is time to no longer endure. We endure until we don't have to endure anymore. 1 Peter chapter 1, 6 through 7, to a scattered and suffering church. Peter writes, In this you rejoice, referencing back to the living hope that they've received. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. You have been grieved by various trials. Now listen, verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith. And then there's a side. We're going to skip past that. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Genuine faith results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When we hear the truth and when we meet him face to face. Instead of hiding in shame or being upset and saying, hey, well, I really think you're a jerk. So I didn't really do anything. No, we'll celebrate when we see him. But look at this side. Look at what he says about this tested genuineness of your faith. He says more precious than gold that perishes. A tested faith, a proven faith. A true faith is worth more than any money you can accumulate. And so the trials we face, yes, they're difficult. We'd be naive to think that these, that these servants who, who saw the mina increase to 10 and increase to 5, we'd be, we'd be naive to think that one would see, uh, either would see so much increase without some sort of trial. That is not the world we live in. We'd have to be telling a fairy tale for the, for, for, to, to not assume that they had faced difficulty and trial in the accumulation of such great gains. Genuine faith is a treasure. And it's tested and it's proven by us enduring, not just coasting, not taking it easy but enduring in the kingdom work that we've been given to to do. James, another point, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's not something we're good at. Are we? Like, what's the trial that you're facing right now? maybe, Maybe you're not facing a trial at this moment, but you just finished one if you're not. What's the trial that you're most familiar with in this moment? For me, it was anxiety. First time I've experienced anxiety in my whole life was just a few weeks ago. I've been telling everybody about it. I'm a weak man, just straight up, right? A needy, dependent man. And I, I, I'll say this. I, I don't like admitting that I dealt with anxiety. First time in my life. But I, was, I, I, I had what I guess is an anxiety attack at, I, I, I didn't go to a doctor and get it diagnosed, but I know enough people that deal with anxiety that I talk to them, and they're like, oh, that's anxiety. Man, my chest was tight. My stomach was sick. I just knew that everything in my life was about to crumble and fall apart, that everybody hated me. All I could do was think about going to eat some worms, right? You know this story. Everybody hates me. Nobody loves me. I think I'll eat some worms. That made me feel that much sicker. It went on for days. I couldn't. I told myself the truth, but I couldn't make myself believe the truth. It didn't assuage the feelings. It didn't change what I was dealing with. Man, I didn't look at that. I didn't didn't face that and say, Thank you, Jesus, that I get to deal with this. Woohoo! Trials of various kinds. And we don't do that. We call on God Oh, man, take this from me. I don't want to endure. I don't want to deal with this. Now, I'm not saying jump on down for, for just celebrate and throw a party and make cakes whenever you face the trial, but with resolute satisfaction and certainty that God is using it for your good, we can face it with, a, with an unending joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When do we get made perfect? Not this side of heaven. A faith that endures to the end results in the perfection and glorification of his people. Genuine faith grows and expands. It's sanctifying until the point we are made perfect when when whether we die and meet Jesus or whether he returns and we are caught up with him in the sky it happens as we endure in faith so faithful servants continue investing what they received in the kingdom's uh, the king's kingdom work faithful servants endure until the king returns faithful servants obey their king's commands even in his absence but we still get to enjoy his presence. There is a reality that he is gone. He's not walking the face of the earth anymore. His flesh and blood body that we will one day be able to touch with our hands and hold in our arms as we hug him and thank him. But his spirit dwells in us. It's a promise he made. My father and I will come and make our home in you. When I am gone, I will send another it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that's come to indwell us. But even as we wait for that day to stand in his presence, where the dim glass will be removed and our faith will become sight, obedient servants obey. They obey. They, they follow his commands. What is it? What are those things that we're to obey and what are we to do? Continue growing in our faith and Repentance. Putting the, putting the, 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 the mine to work that he's given us, putting the, the things to work that he's given us is to grow in our own faith and repentance. It's, it's our lives to be more, made more fully his so that we turn from sin more and we learn to love him more. We, we quit loving the world as much and, and begin loving him more every day, every month, every week, ha, ma, ma, making some progress in, the, in a life of faith and repentance investing in his work not just with our inner self but our outer self our time you know the clock that we live by belongs to him more than it belongs to us like he didn't give them these servants these things for them to own but to steward but yet we act as if we're the god of our own time our own clock our own calendar well, this is just not the right time for me to endure. Wait, what? This is not the right time for me to sacrifice of myself. This is not the right time for me to face trials and tribulations. This is not the right time. I, I, I mean, I picked a time where life is going to be easy. I picked a time where my kids are grown and I'm an empty nester. I don't think we get that choice as faithful servants, we're stewards. We're not owners. Our our treasure, our finances, you realize that, that, and I'm not talking about just this church, probably it's true about this church, but the church in America, the the, the church is probably richer than it's ever been, wealthier than it's ever been in all of history. And I'm guessing, I don't have any scientific numbers to back that up, but I'm guessing. I mean, the church in America is affluent. And we have enjoyed position and and being able to gain wealth just simply because we're connected to the church. But I'm convinced we're more prepared to retire than we are to meet Jesus, our master. Well, you know, when I get the stuff I want, then I'll start giving i got to pay my bills so I can't give to the, to the mission. I've I got to have my coffees at Starbucks. I mean, come on. How can I live without that $5 cup of coffee? We eat out. We pay for television. We buy fancy cars, bigger houses than we need. Fancier cars and bigger houses than we need. We live to the ends of our means. And then if there's anything left over, we decide, well, let's put that to kingdom work. We're servants, not owners. We're stewards, not owners. The sad truth is we're probably more prepared to retire than we are to die. But he's calling us to be faithful servants, and faithful service separates us from wicked servants. Our time, our treasure, our talents, the the abilities we have, the, the, the things that we can do, the personalities that, that, that he's given us to go and, and put these things into the proclamation of the gospel. That rather than a message of false hope being preached, a message of true hope, of, of actual promise, is being, and, and actual power is being proclaimed. How many of us are are, are willing to go out and stump for our favorite candidate or defend some political view or fight for some social justice but not once say that dead people are going to die and be slaughtered when Christ has said, if you'll just believe in me, you'll live forever. Look at your Facebook feeds. Look at your social media feeds. The church is condemned because we're more convinced that the right president in the White House Will give us what we want than the right Savior and Lord in our hearts. He did not leave us here to establish a Republican or Democrat or Libertarian party. He left us here to proclaim the gospel that dead people can live, the gospel that sinful people can be made righteous, and that this life sucks. But if we trust in Him, the best days are yet to come. This is earth, not heaven. That's what He left us to serve each other, to love one another, forgive one another. 59 one another's in the New Testament. The church is supposed to be directing at each other, but yet we struggle with even thinking about being together. We dislike one another and we won't forgive one another like we've been forgiven. We want everyone to love us because it's easier to be loved than to love sacrificially anyone else. And when asked to serve, can't someone else do that? Just living day in, day out for the glory of God's worshipers who lead others to worship Him. Philip Ryken puts it like this. You don't have to to give up your job. You don't have to find some super, super uh, uh, holy calling. You just go into the world that you live today and live for God's glory. Philip Ryken puts it like this. We put the gospel to work by carrying out our regular calling in a way that shows the supremacy of Christ. The worker can do this with his labor, the professor with his scholarship, the educator with her teaching, the lawyer with his justice, the doctor with his medicine, the artist with her craft, as long as it is done with the intention of bringing glory to God. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God, the scripture says. Anything and everything we do is an investment in the kingdom of God, can be an investment in the kingdom of God or can be an investment in the building of your own kingdom. Listen, faithful servants, we, we invest what we've received. Faithful servants endure in investing. Faithful servants obey. And when they have, and the king returns, faithful servants receive rewards from the king that everyone else receives judgment. Listen, the wicked servants are ruined. Do you hear what he says? Take what that one has. Listen, so just so you know, when 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 this man when this man says, I know you're a harsh man, and and he's like, you know I'm a harsh man? That's not agreement with him. It's not that the, that, the, that the lazy, wicked servant was right in his assessment. The, the lazy, wicked servant didn't even know him. If he had really believed that he was a severe man and, and, and had reason to fear him like that, the man would have done something simply out of fear. Still would have been selfish gain. Still would have been selfish prof- protection or, or, or self-protection. He didn't believe this. He didn't even care. He didn't even know. But he was making an excuse to try and justify himself. Wicked servants ruined because what he had is removed. There may be no better example than this of Judas. One of the twelve sent by Jesus into the world to proclaim the gospel, to to teach people of his coming kingdom. He went with the others when they were sent out with the twelve. He went with them when they were sent out with the seventy-two. And it says that they went out preaching with authority and had authority to cast out demons and heal the sick. We assume that Judas was there with them while this was all going down. And yet in the end, it said of him that it's been better if he had never been born. J.C. Ryle, referencing these wicked servants, says, Of these, it, would, it, it should always be noted that the parable does not charge them with being open enemies of Christ or open breakers of God's commandment, but they keep it laid away in a piece of cloth. They have a great gift from God and make no use of it. This will prove at their last, their eternal ruin. They show up every Sunday and they sit in the church. They sing the songs. And they listen to the word. And they justify themselves by it. And they go home and they live their own life. Investing in their own gain. Enduring only as they see fit. And not living in obedience to the king. And when he meets them, take it from them and he sends them away. The rebellious citizens are judged. Those who were rebelled against me, send them to be slaughtered. Hell is eternal. It is, the, it, is the, it is the fullness of God's wrath being rained out on every single person who lived in rebellion forever and ever. It is the place where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. The beauty of him saying that, he's not just being a jerk. In preparing his faithful servants to live this life he takes time to graciously warn, to, to generously. He didn't have to. He didn't have to warn him. He didn't have to tell them that there's anything coming. But he tells them, this is what happens to the rebellious servant. Who wants that? Look, even when we hear that, even the fallen person who hears that doesn't want that. What do we do? We trust in the Savior. And that faith is proven. As we live and endure and invest and obey. I don't, may, maybe you're a wicked servant. Maybe you're a rebellious citizen. I, I, I don't know. But I long for you. I, I, I say these things so directly because I long for you to join other faithful servants who are rewarded. For the true believer, there is nothing but reward to look forward to. The best is yet to come. Enduring ends and joy, unending peace, unimaginable celebration, life forever. It's all it will, it's all it will be the reward will be more than worth it. This is why, unashamedly, every week, unashamedly in this moment, in in the formation of this as a church, we call each other to live for Him so completely. We call each other to this. We expect it from each other for a a lifelong, a, a life of worship and a life of mission because this demonstrates a faithfulness that leads to reward. We do this not because we have to do it. We do not earn our place We do not earn our position in heaven. I appreciate how J.C. Ryle wrote it in reference to this. He says, our title to heaven is all of grace. We have access to the kingdom. We have entrance to the kingdom. We know the king because the king made himself known to us out of his grace by his gospel. But he goes on, our degree of glory in heaven will be proportioned to our works Matthew Henry says, there are degrees of glory in heaven. Every vessel will be alike full. We're all going to be full. We're all going to be satisfied, but not alike large. And the degrees of glory there will be according to the degrees of usefulness here. I long for you to enjoy all that heaven has to offer. Now, you get there, you won't be wanting. You won't be wishing you had more. You won't need to. But what if you got there and you got it all? I mean, give me a gutter in heaven. That's got to be better than this, right? But realistically, what if I got five cities instead of one? What if I got ten cities instead of five? What if I enjoyed the fullness of the kingdom because I simply gave my life so fully to him here? I long for that for you. I love you too much to not tell you. Give your life as a faithful servant, investing in his kingdom, enduring for his kingdom, and living in obedience to the King of that kingdom, so that when you get to heaven, you'll enjoy all his rewards. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. Grateful that our entrance doesn't belong to us, our access isn't because of us, but that you do promise reward for us. And so I I, I would ask in this moment that you would bring conviction as is necessary, that there would be trials of various kinds brought right now in this moment, lives given to other pursuits, lives seeking to own themselves or to live for selfish gain, that your spirit would do heart work right now, and that you would lead your faithful servants to repentance, that you would call out the, the wicked servants and the rebellious citizens, that they would hear the truth that the gospel is that we have access to the God of all things. It's for religious and irreligious alike. Give us the faith that we can begin to exercise, that can begin to grow, that leads us to perfection and completion. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.